Well, we've, uh, we've been going through uh, uh, a series on Beatitudes, and we took a break last two Sundays. It's been great to hear from the Landerholms and see their kids. Those of you who have seen them before, and we were praying for them for their firstborn, and that was a, that was a troubling uh, pregnancy. But now to see them with their kids now and, and how wonderful they look and with their, with their family, uh, it's, it's a blessing to see that happening, how God has, has provided for them. And of course, now a new one on the way as well. We could be praying for them in the pregnancy there. But also then from Lasana Kane and being able to hear the uh, great testimony that he had and how God is using him in the music that he does. And it was fun being able to play with him. Uh, missed Neil in that. And I told Neil about it. And he goes, oh, so yeah, Neil, sorry you missed out on that. But we had some fun with him. It was a good time. And we might have an opportunity later on too, possibly to have him come back for maybe possible outdoor ministry for, for our church. But uh, that's in the works. We're trying to look into that, see how that will work out. And so today we return back to the series, our summer series on the Beatitudes. And I trust that uh, um, through these few weeks that you've been uh, able to get back on track as well with our Beatitudes and, and look at this again, prepare yourself for today's message. The, the first four Beatitudes, let me just kind of back up a little bit and, and uh, review just slightly so that you kind of be on, on the same track here. But the first four Beatitudes, the being poor in spirit, uh, facing sorrow, being meek, craving righteousness, all pointed to the inner self. They focus on attitudes that shape who we are. The poor in spirit, seeing ourselves for who we really are, people in need of forgiveness, and then we looked at those who mourn and confronting sorrow instead of hiding from, from that sorrow or, or self-medicating against it. So we confront it. And then the meekness, considering ourselves servants to those who are around us. And then we looked at hunger and thirsting after righteousness. And that's seeking God's righteousness uh, in, a, in, a way, in a way where uh, we seek the very basics of life. And so as we hunger and as we thirst, we also will hunger and thirst not only for the food and water, but we hunger and thirst after Jesus. And then uh, now uh, Jesus turns our attention to our outward lives as we look at this next beatitude or how we might live among others. And we, he starts by telling us to, to simply care for, in practical ways, those who are around us. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, it's where the beatitude is that we're going to focus on today. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, on Friday, Becky and I, well, I guess I better fess up. I had a great idea um, <laughs> that we should go uh, walking and uh, we could go visit Brianna. And yeah, it'd be a great time. It's a sunny day, beautiful and all that. And we decided to take off from our house about 2.30 in the afternoon and uh, go see Brianna. Well, Brianna works in West Lynn. At Dutch Bros, there on the, on the 10th Street exit off of 205. And so, yeah, we'll go ahead and walk. It'll be fun. It'll be great. And so we started off. And we, this is great. This is fun. And we enjoyed it. And we were going along. And by the time we got past Kaiser Hospital, which is not very far from our house, we're going, what time will we get there? And uh, we looked at the watch and looked at the GPS and all that. And it was like 10 minutes before she gets off work. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we got going. Our pace for the first uh, six miles was pretty good. And we had pretty flat stuff going on down 205 pathway and all that. And 
By the time we got over across the Oregon City Bridge, that was the first one. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a little incline. Then we had to go up a little higher, and then we turned on Rosemont. That just took us straight up, and was halfway through that stuff, we were like going really slow <laughs> after that. And uh, we realized, hmm, maybe not such a good idea. <laughs> and we got out and uh, had, had to come out towards uh, Salama that brought us down into then uh, the 10th Street exit area, the Willamette area, where she works at the Dutch Bros. Uh, by, by the time we got out of the neighborhood, uh, before we got out of the neighborhood, she uh, texted us and said, uh, I'm getting off work early. So, <laughs> wait. <laughs> so Becky quickly sent her a text and said, no, no, we're almost there in 12 minutes. And Brianna thought, 12 minutes? Why do you guys want to drive out here? I'm going to be leaving. You don't have to drive out here. And it was like, no, we're walking. We're almost there. It's been three hours of walking. We want you to take us home. <laughs> to get in there, we finally got the Dutch, and I was like, I need, I need to cool down. And Becky's like, well, I'll just, you know, maybe we go to Subway. Nope, I'm going to Dutch. <laughs> I know I can get a drink there that will just cool me off and be in their cool place. Well, Brianna had mercy on us. <laughs> she stayed there for a little while longer, and uh, she was able to take us home. But, uh, man... I was a mess. I was just sweaty. And it was, oh, yeah. Anyway, it was not good. Um, Moses almost had a phone call there <laughs> from his, his patient. Help me. Anyway, but Brianna had mercy on us to take us home. It was funny. By the time we got home, it wasn't like a quiet ride home at all. But it's almost like mom and mom and dad was kind of punishing us. <laughs> we come home and he set us down in the dining room. We're sitting there quietly. <laughs> I just I finally said, I said, sounds like we're we're in trouble <laughs> with our kids. Right? Yes, you are. Why did you do that? I'm sorry. Anyway, there's a form of mercy there that allowed us to uh, from Brianna allows us to get a ride home. But oh my goodness, what a walk! I don't encourage it. Nine and a half miles in the hundred degree heat, probably not a good idea. But uh, yeah, what were we thinking? Nothing. And I had the mind mindset before we left to say, yeah, we can walk out there and go over to the Willamette and maybe go have a, a lunch at a bistro or something like that. It'd be all nice. Oh, we didn't want anything else but oxygen and air and <laughs> didn't work out. Anyway, the phrase able to take care of themselves is one of those phrases that is quite popular these days. We thought we could take care of ourselves. It didn't happen. But uh, take, for example, how we give aid to people in need. The principle that governs many of our attempts to help others is found in this cliche. Give a man a fish, and he will be back tomorrow. Teach a man to fish, and he will take care of himself. Uh, this principle is also found in parenting. I came across an article just recently, this, this month actually, online, and it's eight things you should stop doing for your teenager. Now, a mom's heart is going to hurt for this. Any of you mercies in the room are going to kind of, you know, squirm a little bit. But basically, she starts out the article by saying, how do we raise competent adults if we're always doing everything for our kids? And so she lists eight things you should stop doing for your teenager. One, waking them up in the morning. Let them use an alarm clock. The snooze button no longer feels luxurious when it's caused you to miss breakfast. It's kind of a natural consequences thing. She says also, number two, making their breakfast and packing their lunch. Don't do that. Don't do that. She says her job is to make sure there's food in the house so that they can eat breakfast and pack their own lunch. They'll, she'll provide it. They, they got to do it. 
And then uh, a third one, uh, filling out their paperwork. All the school and stuff like that, beginning of school. Um, but they go through a process. And she says, hold your teens accountable. They will need to fill out job and college applications soon, and they need to know how to do that without your intervention. A fourth thing, delivering their forgotten items. Oh, mom, dad, I forgot my whatever, my lunch. And so you got um, as she said, parents don't miss opportunities to provide natural consequences for your teens. Forget something, feel the pain of that. <laughs> Kids also get to see that they can make it through the day without a mistake consuming them. A fifth thing uh, that parents should uh, stop doing for their teenagers, making their failure to plan your emergency. So school projects don't get assigned the night before they are due. Therefore, I don't run out and pick up materials at the last minute to get a project finished. She always keeps poster boards and other general materials on hand for, for what she calls procrastinating children. But uh, other needed items you may have to wait for. A sixth thing she says don't do is doing all their laundry. And I know Colleen right now is probably just going, no, I want to help my kids. But every once in a while, she says, a child needs a healthy reminder that I do not work for them. <laughs> The minute they assume that this is my main role in life is the minute that I gladly hand over the laundry task to them. Anyway, she says she does do the washing with the kids most days and folding and all that and putting the clothes away, but they are capable of tackling the entire process when need be. And then a seventh thing she says, emailing and calling their teachers and coaches. This should be the job of the child, the teenager. Teenagers should be responsible to be able to do that. And uh, uh, if, if you need to step in, step in. But let them take care of that. And then uh, uh, meddling in their academics. Um, I, I don't know. There's some accountability that needs to happen there as well, too. But uh, again, she says it's to raise competent and capable adults. But my question to that article goes, where's the mercy? <laughs> so I'm one that's going, oh, but you know what? Yeah, maybe this one time. You know, and, and then you know, give them a warning. But if, you know, I don't know. So I understand the concept behind it, but uh, for me, I'm looking at it going, hmm, I don't see mercy in there very much. But maybe it's assumed that's in there, but uh, as far as her, her ideas and plans on that, it, it's kind of, for this mercy person, hard to handle at times. But there is value, though, in teaching people how to help themselves and not just give them handouts. But we must never allow, allow that to stifle our simpler calling, which is to just help people where they are with what they need. You see that they need help? Maybe you can meet that need. True mercy is a real, tangible demonstration that we care about people. And it could be as simple as providing a cold drink on a hot day. Thank the Lord for Brianna at Dutch, you know, being able to give me a cold drink there. Or it can be as complicated as walking someone through the loss of a loved one. And some of you have experienced that recently as well. But true mercy is given without expectation of anything in return. It's not a gift exchange, but it's the free, no strings attached giving of help. True mercy is also given without making any requirements of, of, those, of those who receive it. And we don't make people qualify for help. We simply help them. You look at all the times that, that Jesus showed mercy. Jesus helped lame people walk again, which would obviously help them help others or help, help themselves. But he also fed 5,000 people who were very able to go feed themselves. He cleansed 10 lepers, 
with the result being that they could live, for, live life for themselves. And he knew that only one would actually be thankful, but he didn't unheal the other nine for their lack of gratefulness. He also made wine at a wedding where everybody had already consumed what was provided. And Jesus said it best through a story which we can all relate to, the Good Samaritan. If you want, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, and you can see that, uh, that story there. But the story of the Good Samaritan is one of those familiar Bible stories that we get to hear early on in childhood if you grew up in the church. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably have heard of the concept in other ways as well. But Jesus tells us this story in reaction to a, a lawyer's question. He has led the lawyer to admit that loving God and loving our neighbor are the two greatest commandments. A lawyer caught up, caught, caught up by his own shortcomings also asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? What does that person look like? And this question can also be rephrased as, well, who do I really need to care about? Well, make sure I am. I don't want to find out that I'm not doing the right thing. And it's the lawyer's attempt to sift out the, the riffraff from those who are, in his eyes, truly deserving of love. Because he doesn't want to give that love away to just anybody, right? In verse 30 in, in Luke chapter 10, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was just over 18 miles long a lot longer than our walk to Dutch. But in that span, it drops over 3,000 feet. Wish we were going downhill that day, but it didn't happen. And so over 3,000 feet, it drops. And that's why Jesus says the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was a dangerous winding descent through limestone foundations that included many caves. So it was a prime area for bandits to hide and wait for unsuspecting prey. And the bandits cared for nothing but their own greed, and, a killing, and killing a man for his, own, his clothes and purse would be a common practice for them. They even had a motive to leave the victim dead, because see, if they were caught, they would face the same punishment for robbery as they would for murder, which is crucifixion. So it was safer for them to, to kill any victims or witnesses to their crime than to leave them alive. So in verse 31, it says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, listeners of this right now, as Jesus is telling the story, would hear Jesus mention the priest and think, Oh, good, the priest will, will, will help him. This is good. They would be disappointed, though, to hear of his reluctance to even see if the man was still alive. And some have argued that a priest would defile himself if he touched a dead body. So, okay, I understand so if he couldn't help, stop to help, that's fine. He had to maintain his purity for his priestly duties. And also in this kind of argument, crossing over to the other side of the road is seen as an act of devotion because some thought that even your shadow making contact with a dead body was enough to risk defilement. But two things come up against this argument. One, he's not on his way to work. He's traveling the same direction as the man was. Jesus said he's going down the same road, going down. So going down meant Jerusalem to Jericho. A priest traveling in this direction would be returning home from his priestly duties in the from the temple in Jerusalem. And the second thing about this is even if he did defile himself, there was an understanding that this was a risk he should take to help a fellow man. There were always plenty of priests on duty 
who could cover for him if he had to excuse himself. And there was also a prescribed method of cleansing himself after contact with a dead body. So instead of showing the compassion that God expects him to show, he deliberately avoids even checking on the man's condition. So he's, he sees a dying man and crosses the road to avoid him. He doesn't want to get involved. He may be scared because the same bandits who robbed the visitor could make him their next victim. But regardless, he's no hero of the faith. In verse 32, and Jesus continues, So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the Levite would be a worker in the temple. Uh, The priests were responsible for the rituals and sacrifices, while the Levites did the repairs, maintained the animals, and generally kept the temple running our trustees, if you will. <laughs> the people would hear, him, uh, would hear him be mentioned and think, oh, good, if the priest won't help, surely this Levite will. But they will, again, be disappointed. His behavior is exactly the same as the priest. He, too, doesn't want to risk the, his, his neck to get involved. And after these two disappointments, the listeners will be expecting to hear that an ordinary man just like them came by and helped the man. Because you've got the progression here going on. Jesus had worked down the religious ranks from a priest to a Levite, and the next logical step would be a regular practicing Jew, right? But there was even a public uh, sentiment at the time that the regular Jews were more Jewish than the professionals like the priests and Levites. So they might be anticipating where the story might be going. and go, okay, I, I, I can see this. With this in mind, Jesus' next sentence would literally cause them to choke with disgust. (laughs) In verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, we've been accustomed so much to hearing the Samaritan in a good light that we can't really feel the disgust the original audience would have had. We've we've even named the parable (laughs) the story of the Good Samaritan even though nowhere in this story he is called good. But to find a similar comparison to the Jews and the Samaritans today, we we could go to Israel now and tell a story about a Palestinian suicide bomber stopping to help a Jewish settler. That analogy would be very close because the Samaritans of that day were despised by the Jews, and they were considered trespassers on Jewish land. In the century before the birth of Christ, they had even been attacked by the Jews because of disagreements over boundaries. Jewish settlers in a disputed area had been attacked by Samaritans. And in response, the Jews had marched into Samaria, reclaimed the land, and torn down the Samaritans' main temple. And Jesus takes, takes this into account when He tells the story. He's looking for the hardest person for, for His listeners to regard as a neighbor. And He found it. And I'm sure you also, too, could place in that position the hardest type of neighbor you could think of that could be this good, that could do these things. The Samaritan risks his own life and spends his own money to help the man several different ways. Verses 34 through 35, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So a few points here to consider 
uh, of, of the Samaritan's actions. He probably had to use his own clothing for bandages because he, he certainly wasn't a paramedic with a first aid kit right handy on his donkey there. So probably had to use some of his clothing to do that. The oil and wine would be traditional treatments for injuries, oil to soothe pain, wine to clean the wound. And placing the man on his donkey would slow him down and make him vulnerable for attack. Taking him to the inn would provide a safe place for them both. And nursing him back to health would take valuable time. But he stays with him overnight to make sure he will survive. And finally, his payment of the bill accounts to a three-and-a-half-week deposit. He, he gives the innkeeper two silver coins, and the going rate for an inn or room and board was one-twelfth of a silver coin. So he gives well far beyond what it was needed. Well far beyond any of the listeners would have expected from anyone, except maybe their own family. And with that in mind, Jesus asks this lawyer the following question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The man knew the answer. And by this time, so did everyone else who was listening. The conversation had started with this man thinking he could, he could test Jesus. And now Jesus has trapped him into acknowledging a Samaritan's actions as a role model for love. He spits out the answer, but he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Verse 37, the expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. <laughs> Didn't name him, but the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus has left the man no room for wiggling out of loving his neighbor, from his closest family to his most despised enemy, and with the same kind of love that we show ourselves. The story ends with a simple statement. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus tells us the same thing. Go and do likewise. Be merciful. But he says it with a condition, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus' love for us, His mercy shown in our lives, comes with no need for payment required. But that does not mean that He expects nothing of us. Further along in, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, there's another story Jesus tells that emphasizes this uh, sixth beatitude. I want to share it with you real quick in Matthew chapter 25. Now, I can right now already hear Keith Green's song and piano going on about the, sheeps and the sheep and the goats. But in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40, it's when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave Me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited Me in. I needed, needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Verse 38, when did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did, you see, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And in verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, 
you did for me. So in this case, Jesus is not telling a story. He is telling his followers what he will do when it is time for him to come to the earth. He has said that those who care for others will be cared for themselves. These people called the righteous are those who have chosen to follow him and show it in their lives. They have simply cared for those who they came in contact with. They are not righteous simply because they have helped people. Jesus has made it very clear in in other places in Scripture that we cannot earn righteousness on our own. But helping others is the primary outward sign of their righteousness. It's the evidence of their faith in Christ. So those helped had been people with many different needs, ranging from starvation to dehydration to lack of shelter and clothing, sickness, and even imprisonment. The righteous had helped these people not knowing that they were actually helping the king. They had simply cared for those who needed care. And because of that, they received first-class tickets to the greatest gift, eternal life, the kingdom of God. They are indeed shown mercy. But then the king delivers the bad news in this rest of this portion of Scripture from verse 41 through 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Verse 45, he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These people are absolutely stunned. They may have thought of themselves as righteous followers of Christ, or they may not have cared at all. The common ground they they all share is that they didn't share with anyone. (laughs) They saw care or mercy as helping those who can then help them. They probably would have cared for the king if they had known it was him. But to those who really needed help, they had nothing to give. They didn't care for those who needed help care. Their outward actions have shown an inward heart which was focused on nothing but themselves. They have not shown mercy, therefore they do not receive mercy. And the difference between the two groups, in the words of Keith Green at the end of his song, is what they did and didn't do. So let's strive to be people who simply care for others. People who show mercy to those in need of help. Without mercy, we can't be committed to two of our church core values. Where we're being committed to relational connectedness. Because we value treating all people with love, grace, and compassion. You can't do that if you don't have mercy. We need to be merciful. Also, too, we're committed to being a righteous refuge. Because we value providing a safe place that promotes hope and healing for all, Samaritans, Jews, whoever, Gentiles, all. We can't do that if we don't show mercy. We need to be merciful. 
We, we, we do need to be careful, though, in our mercy. We don't want to put money in the hands of a drunk begging outside the liquor store. There's wisdom there. We don't help others do wrong simply because it may make life easier for them. I just uh, saw an article, actually there's a headline, didn't read the article yet. Apparently there's some people who are out there as they, they ask for money with the cardboard signs or whatever. There are people out there who are playing a violin that aren't actually playing a violin for money. They, they just act like they are in the sound system does the violin. So there are people out there who are in need and need the help. But sometimes you need to be discerning on that as well, too. And watch, watch, your, watch yourself. <laughs> but we must not let cautiousness interfere with or overpower mercy. Mercy should always be welling up inside of us. We should always also, too, have uh, the wisdom from God. It's a challenge because it can be so easy to offer help with our own, with, with our own strings attached. I'll give this to you, but then uh, you better come to church. Or I'll give this to you, and you, know, you, know, you better stop doing that. We need to make sure that as we show mercy to people, and we don't do it with strings atta attached in that way. The closer we can come to being able to show that mercy, the closer we are to showing true mercy. And when do we reach this point of true mercy? It's when we extend our hand to someone who cannot help us at all. You see a need out there, and they need some help, financial, your time, whatever it is, and you know they can't do anything to help you back. You do it anyway. When we open our hearts to someone who may not return our compassion, you care for them. You know, maybe that's happened with you and your kids, <laughs> and they haven't shown much love back to you, mom and dad, but you still do it because you love them. When we spend time with someone who has nothing to give us in return, you spend that valuable time that you could have done other things with because they need that moment. When we give our hand, uh, our, our hard-earned cash to someone who will never repay, that's when we're showing true mercy. When we open our homes to someone who may not make life easier by their coming. <laughs> Maybe you've had house guests like that before. You're showing true mercy. When we spend time with people who may not even know we are there showing true mercy. We will all show mercy in different ways. And you probably have done that. Just as each one of us stands unique before God and each other, we will show mercy in so many different ways. Even though we are all different in personality, we all share a common need. We all need the mercy of Christ in our lives. He offers us so much that we can never earn our own. And what does he ask in return? That we, having experienced his mercy, go on to share it with others. Have you received the mercy of Christ in your life? If you have, then you have no excuse to show mercy to those around us. Mercy, caring for others the outward sign that we understand that Jesus cares for us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We're going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to share in the last couple songs here. As, as they do, I trust that God is working on your heart in the way of being able to show mercy to other people. Maybe, maybe 
The Holy Spirit's tapped you on the shoulder about someone in your life. Maybe tapped you on the shoulder about a, a, an opportunity you could have had this last week or in the past. That you could have shown mercy. You could have helped someone out with a specific need. The thing is, God gives us opportunities all the time. If you missed out on one, better be sure there's another one coming. Don't miss out on it. And maybe our prayer is, is that we'd have our eyes wide open to see those situations in our lives, to be able to to try to meet the need that is around us. And if it is possible, and if it is wise, we need to be discerning. But don't miss out on opportunities to be merciful to those around you. And maybe that will be your prayer today. However, the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. Just be obedient to what He has for you. And as we sing these last uh, two songs, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart about these things, about being merciful.